You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach, and you might be hearing this on Friday the 13th. And you know what? Friday the 13th doesn't scare me at all. I don't find myself frightened that often. Nervous? That's another story. I worry. I worry about my loved ones and their health and their relationships and the health of their relationships. I worry about the planet and how we're depleting it and its resources. I worry about saying the wrong thing or worse, not having anything at all to say. Here's what scares me. Heights and not just heights, but rickety like the top of a ladder or the top of a mountain and having to get down. Usually getting down is worse than going up. And stampeding crowds, whether it's being pushed on the stairs or the subway or, I mean, the last place I want to be New Year's Eve is at Times Square. Who would want to be with the crowds? Anyway, our guest this week is one of the bravest people I know. It is stand-up comedian and activist Liz Winstead, who, among other accomplishments, co-created The Daily Show and Air America Radio. She is co-founder of Abortion Access Front and has dedicated the lion's share of her stand-up income to First Planned Parenthood and now AAF. Pretty decent of her. Now, my five things. Number one, share. My friend Dan took me with him to see Cher at Madison Square Garden. I hadn't realized that this was one of her many farewell tours. She joked that it wasn't her first farewell tour, probably not going to be her last. She's 73. She fits into those barely there body stocking-y costumes. Now, maybe there's a little bit more lining in them than there used to be, but my God, she's 73. She's still standing up. She's still performing with dancers. She's feisty. She's smart. She's patriotic. Whatever Cher wants to do, could we just let her do it? Okay, good. Number two, buying and wrapping presents. I love finding the perfect present for my friends and family. I work at it. I take it seriously. It gives me pleasure. I'm not the best rapper, but I find rapping to be kind of calming and nice thing to do. And I'm always thinking of the person who's getting it when I choose and rap and tape and put a card on it. I don't know. I do get some paper cuts, but it's worth it. Number three, Tom in Succession. Are you all watching Succession or have you all watched it on HBO? Whoa. It is a show about, it's kind of a soap opera. People say it reminds them of Dallas. It's allegedly inspired by the Murdochs. It's not that much of a stretch, except they're American. But it's a powerful family that owns a media conglomerate. The actor Matthew McFadden, who is actually British, plays the son-in-law named Tom Wamsgans. That's his name. And he's married to the terrifying Siobhan. And you never know. Does he know how bad they are? Because he seems a little bit like a patsy. But yet he's getting meaner and more and sneakier as the episodes go. He tries so hard to be cool and thick-skinned at the same time. He's really a nice person at heart. 
anyway, it's an interesting dialectic, and he's fantastic. He's so British, by the way. He played Mr. Darcy to, I think, Kira Knightley in A Pride and Prejudice that was on the BBC. Number four, Linda Ronstadt. I have loved her music and her voice since I was a teenager. There was a mellowness to it, a, an occasional huskiness. I do admire Linda Ronstadt now for being so outspoken. We know she suffers from Parkinson's disease and has very limited in, in her public appearances, but she's also a great American. And honestly, I was thrilled that she was honored as a Kennedy Center honoree or fellow or whatever they're called. And I was impressed that she spoke up and spoke out at Mike Pompeo, who was trying to, I guess, honor her with a citation from a song that she sang, When Will I Be Loved, but which was a cover. But I think it was a Buddy Holly song, right? When Will I Be Loved or Everly Brothers. She sang it. And he said, When Will I Be Loved? And she said, When You Leave this White House. And number five, I saw Peter Asher of Peter and Gordon, Peter Asher's show, a musical memoir of the 60s and beyond at the cutting room this week. It is a great show. It's like having a Ken Burns documentary about the British invasion in the 60s and the Beatles, but right live in front of you where you can interact. He allows you and encourages you to sort of have a dialogue with him while he's talking and telling his stories about watching Paul McCartney write a song in eight minutes or a bridge to a song in eight minutes and knowing the Rolling Stones and discovering James Taylor and producing Linda Ronstadt. Anyway, if you're in San Francisco, Peter's show is going to be he's going to do his show Sunday night the 15th. I recommend it if you can get there and we'll be right back with Liz Winstead. I have admired Liz Winstead since before she had all the Z's on her name. I think I admired you when you had one Z or Z as they call it in England. Um, Liz is a a person who is brave, who believes what she believes and has no problem talking about it, who has combined her passion for women's reproductive health with her career as a stand-up comedian and a creator, a creative. Don't you hate that term, a creative? It's an adjective, not a noun. It is. It is. And you also invented or co-invented The Daily Show. You found performers. I know that Craig Kilborn was the unfortunate host, but you found Brian Unger. You found Beth Littlefield. You found Littleford. You found someone called Stephen Colbert. You found these people who have giant voices now. You co-founded Air America Radio, which, please, if only we had it now, we thought things were bad then. And you're hilarious, and you are the founder of AAF, Abortion Access Front, which used to be called Lady Parts Parts Justice Justice League. League. I'm sorry, I have such a hard time saying that. Um, So welcome, and explain how you do all you do. 
Well, clearly I am doing crack all the time. <laughs> just it's kind of, it's just I'm on the pipe right. all the time. Uh, you know, I always it's if you don't if you're not passionate about it, it will suck the life out of you. And if you're passionate about it, uh, you can really go until you're tired and then you're excited to wake up the next day. And so I always just sort of said to myself, if I have a job that I hate, it's going to take up as much time and energy as a job where I get like fulfillment from. So there was things that I really cared about uh, as far as, you know, reproductive rights and justice. Uh, And then there was comedy, which is, you know, sort of my trajectory into everything. And I desperately wanted to find a way to combine the two so that I could not have to separate them out, but use all of my energies to work on things that I believe in. I hate hypocrisy. I hate stupidity. I don't like people who take who have power and use it to be manipulative or are just stupid and somehow someone gave them power. I'm not talking about anyone in particular. I'm just saying yeah. there's some people in the world who live in a, in Washington, D.C. that maybe aren't the smartest. Yeah. I mean, no names. No names. No who names. needs a name? Right. But you got to, you chose because you're all about freedom of choice and you chose to combine them. And it's really working. Yeah, it is. It's very cool. So I, um, what happened was I was finishing up my book back in 20. 20- 10. That would be Liz Free or Die. Liz Free or Die, my book of essays. And um, I went back. I'm from Minnesota originally. And so I threw my two rescue dogs in a van and drove back home so I could um, sort of just be around the life that I was writing about. And it was right when all those laws started happening. And we remember Wendy Davis standing on the Texas legislature. For 14 hours. For 14 hours. And it was these laws that Wendy Davis was fighting against, what America didn't realize was that 27 other states had proposed this exact piece of model legislation. And so while all eyes were on Texas, no eyes were on other states. And so clinic doors started shuttering in all these places. And I was like, the media is not really covering it. They were covering Wendy Davis. But activists and folks, even pro-choice folks and people who were smart were like, I didn't, I didn't know, know this that. was happening, yeah, right? Right. So when I finished writing my book, I was like, I want to go raise awareness. So I packed my dogs in the van, and I started driving around the country doing fundraisers and awareness raising events so that people would know what was happening. And at the time, I think they were for the benefit of Planned Parenthood. Yeah, mostly Planned Parenthood, some NARAL events, and, and some independent clinics. And so the thing that struck me as I was driving back home to Brooklyn on this tour was I would go visit clinics and they would say to me, thank you for coming. You know, no one visits us. We sort of feel isolated. We feel like even though people say they're pro-choice, they put caveats. They say, well, no one likes abortion. No one's really, you know, pro-abortion or, or, um, you know, and I was like, so how do you feel when people say things like, um, well, at least we have to have abortion for rape and incest. And they said, it makes it feel like there's people that are having bad abortions and people who are having good abortions. And we really want to value everyone's decision to have an abortion without stigma and shame. And we're not even getting that from people who purport to be uh, with us on the issue. And it just broke my heart. So I finally got back to Brooklyn and I gathered comics and producers in kind of a creative war room. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I just had this six months experience and I can't just drive around the country and do shows. 
I think that we should use our creative forces to A, um, make videos that we can expose these laws on a larger scale. But I think we need to go out as a crew. And I think we need to go to places that um, don't get headliners from music and comedy like Little Rock in Jackson, Mississippi, Montgomery, Alabama, and do a show and bring in all the progressive comedy fans and let them know what's happening and then let them hear from the providers in those towns and the activists in those towns so that instead of having trying to get 20 people together in a kitchen to do something, you have 300 people in a room and then they can talk about the specifics of their state, what they need, and then we have activist tables set up in the room and people can sign up and do that. So we're traveling around the country about four months out of the year growing these activist bases. It's pretty great. And then the second thing I learned was in states where there's just hostility towards access to abortion, mm -hmm. if you're a clinic and let's say you need your lawn mowed or let's say you need to get your exam rooms painted, you can't find someone to do it because you provide abortion. Ah. Um, so services that would be granted to any other small business, you can't do it. So we go in and do a big works project for them. And then when we're on stage having our conversation with the audience, we let our audience know the needs of that clinic. So if they can't get a roofer or a landscaper or someone to shovel their walk, uh, you know, I'll never forget this guy in Wichita, Kansas was like, are you telling me activism is if I go to this clinic and they pay me and I mow their lawn once a week, that's activism. And I said, yeah, you putting your van in front of that clinic and saying, I support them and I want them here is activism. And he's like, I'm blown away. And I was like, I am too. I was too. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You know what's cool about what you're saying is that ordinarily when we all bemoan what's going on, we end up just bumming each other out. Yeah. And you end up with a room, maybe it's 20 people in a kitchen, thinking uh, it's hopeless. Yeah. But when you get activists to show up and say, oh, by the way, we're having a bake sale yeah. or, we're, or we're taking a list of volunteers to be escorts, suddenly there's a plan of action and you don't feel so grim. And you don't realize, like, I cannot tell you how many shows we've been in a city where somebody will be like, I work with her. I didn't know she was pro-choice. Like you, that's my neighbor. Yeah. Like so, to be able to gather that many people in a room makes you also feel like you're not. You there is. You're the, not in the minority, yeah, perhaps, because we're not. Okay, so we know from studies <laughs> done by Pew or Shu or whomever that most Americans, when asked, are in favor of women's right to choose. Yeah. But. There are old white men who are so, so violently against this yeah. that they have, this is the flag they are going to die on. Yes. Why do they care? I feel like they care because reproductive freedom is the first step to being able to, when you decide when, if, and how many kids you're going to have, you are creating a path for your own destiny. And you're opening up the world to yourself. It is pure patriarchy. When somebody sees a person with a uterus making decisions and all of a sudden stepping into their territory, 
it freaks them out. And then they have become self-appointed vaginal crossing guards. <laughs> and I don't, it's like amazing that it, but it, that's what it is. It's not about the babies. It's not about anything else. It's all about if we give women and people who can get pregnant every opportunity to succeed, it's going to step into and step over the mediocrity we have been succeeding upon for all so many years. We can't let them be independent. They need to rely on us. And they also, it's been just so such a given for so many years that men of marginal quality will just keep going up the ladder that somebody who can actually challenge their expertise uh, for is threatening. To them, right? It's right. like the last gasp of of a of a just average dude getting getting away with success, and they're freaked out. And I really think that that is a huge part of it. And they can say it's many many things, but um, I tell you, I have escorted at at a clinic. Um, there's a couple of clinics that do some really cool stuff. The one in Jackson, Mississippi, in particular, it's the last clinic in Mississippi. It's an independent provider, not affiliated with Planned Parenthood, which um, it's very important to talk about the fact that I love Planned Parenthood, and people think that reproductive care is synonymous with Planned Parenthood, but there's 60% of the abortions provided in our country are done at small community clinics that are independent. Interesting. And as we get later in abortion, when people need them for different reasons, and that goes up to 95%. So Jackson, Mississippi, it's called the Pink House, and they have this way where they have 200 protesters out there every time they do procedures. And so if you engage with one of these men, they're so focused on a woman challenging the thought that the other escorts will just escort the patients right in. Like they're completely distracted by a woman challenging their point of view right. and they can't wait to shame you. So if you have the th hide for it, which as a comic, I'm used to hecklers. Right. I'll let this guy tell me I'm going to hell. Tell me I'm, where's my husband. Tell me I'm too ugly to have a husband. Tell me all this stuff. And as he's yelling at me, you know, 30 patients that day made it to their appointments because these protesters couldn't help themselves at the opportunity to shame a woman who dare talk to them. Well, and and do they get paid to stand there all day? Is some, this, is some this their job? Some get paid by anti-abortion um, people, and some are absolutely just unhirable. And so many of them are retirees. You know, and that's the thing is that when you go a lot of times to clinics, the escorts will also be retirees and the anti-abortion protesters will be retirees because it's privileged to do, to be able to volunteer your time right. and not work on a Saturday, right? And so a lot of times there's not young people doing that because people need to make money and can, right. don't have the have, have the wherewithal to do that. So um, it's interesting sometimes to see that how retirees, some take their time to want to help patients get into clinics safely and some want to spend their retired life, as you said, um, shaming women and that's the sword they're going to die on. Wow. Yeah. You know, the other interesting thing to me is that reason has nothing to do with it because you, if you study enough, you know that Phyllis Schlafly paid for an abortion for one of her daughters. Yeah. You know that Donald Trump was a supporter of Planned Parenthood before he decided to be king. And he my guess is. Yeah, many, however many. My guess is. Uh, 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 you know that many people who stand in front of us and proclaim it's the devil's work and that you're killing precious life are uh, 
abortion until consumers they need one. until yeah. they need one. Furthermore, there is a thing that I just understood. You probably figured this out a long time ago, but it was a V8 moment in my forehead. Wait, they protect the unborn, but they really don't like humans once they're born. Right. And the thing that is so fascinating is that every single time they start lobbying these pieces of legislation to protect the fetus, mm -hmm. they're actually dehumanizing the women who are pregnant. Right. Well, and it's never about the no, mothers. It's never about, no, it's never about living people, and it's no. never about um, after you're born. And now there are, it's never even about the realities of life. Um, the Ohio state legislature was is trying to pass a bill that says you can't have an abortion if you have an ectopic pregnancy. Right. They're Unless saying, it's replanted, which, is a which thing. you not can't a thing. do. It's not it, a thing. It's not a thing. There's so many not a things yeah. that it's like literally some doctor in 1917 was like bragging to his buddies like he pulled his dick out. Okay, shit, and <laughs> was like, you can say that. And he was like, oh, guess what? I'm going to I'm gonna tell you something I did. And like, <laughs> you didn't do that because it's not a thing. And it certainly wasn't a thing in 1917. So the fact that... When Mitch McConnell when said Mitch it. When Mitch McConnell said it, yes. Yeah. So you're like, wait. That is a, an ectopic pregnancy that is not taken care And first of all, we shouldn't even call it a pregnancy because a fertilized egg has to implant itself into the uterus for it to be a pregnancy. Right. And then actually you release pregnancy hormones. Like that's how it works. So if it never makes it into the uterus, I don't know why we call it ectopic pregnancy because it's technically not even a pregnancy. So if you don't terminate that fertilized egg from your fallopian tubes, you could die. Right. Like, And that's why it's super important to make sure that you... And the ectopic pregnancy, like every doctor will tell you that. So to say we're going to have a law that forces you to do that and try to re-implant it into the uterus, which is not a thing. But again, creating these incredibly shaming, horrifying medical procedures that are going to fail uh, so that you can assert your governmental power. Like for people who want small government, I, I guess they want it so small that you could fit it into a uterus. Well, I, I guess know. that's what it is, right? Because it doesn't make sense. It they doesn't want make to sense. police every woman and what she's doing. Yeah. But again, as you say, there is no consideration for the woman. There is no consideration for her health. She may be anemic. She may not be able to carry it. She may not be able to afford it. She may have a history of mental health or some other. Uh, congenital illness that would be hereditary. There's so many reasons. If someone and it does, doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter. It's her body. It, why? Yes. Why are you, Governor Kasich, who seemed like the reasonable choice at one time? Why are you you know, yeah. supporting this? Well, idea? and and his his predecessor, Governor Dewine, is even worse. But you know, the truth be told is, we never trust women to know anything about themselves, right? I, If somebody makes a decision for themselves that they don't have the ability to parent or they are parenting at their capacity, mm -hmm. the fact that somebody would say to them, I don't believe you, and would put another child into their in, in life risk. at yeah. risk yeah. is so depressing. And it's like, that's why like when they have those waiting period laws that are unnecessary or anything else, there's always, every one of these laws is to say, we do not think that women are capable of making decisions for themselves. And and for me, if we start making that the norm and we start having laws like we have already, these waiting periods and all this other stuff, 
that's going to go way beyond the scope of reproductive rights. And that's going to become part of the social fabric that says, we really can't trust women. They just don't make good decisions for themselves. That means, are we not going to trust to hire them to run our businesses? Are we not going to trust them to fight in the military if that's what they choose? So it's really setting up a precedent that we are incapable of being in charge of things. So the women in in the House and the Senate who are against women's right to choose, mm-hmm. where what's their what's their excuse? I think that they are benefiting from patriarchy. You know, it's like, hey, I I they're all first of all, you know, most of them are past reproductive age, so they don't have to worry about it anymore. But also, you know, it's really nice to 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 benefit from patriarchy. And I think that it's, you get invited into the VIP club. Yeah. right? And, and, you know, white women have privilege and it's mostly white women who are like, you know what? Here's the thing I can. Um, and there's also a veil of racism, too. You know, it's like the white women are like, oh, it's fine. Um, I guess I'm just perfectly fine having my husband be really, really rich and I'll have the kids and I'll do this and I'll be able to choose that and somebody will take care of me. And I'm in social circles where I have the ability to meet a bunch of rich men who are looking for a wife who will a daughter upon him. And I will assume that role. And that's a role that I want, which is fine. But many people don't want that role, you know. And then also there is a lot of I have met people who are very um, stigmatizing of black and brown women who need abortions, not understanding that we haven't provided any kind of economic situation or policy that says we honor all pregnancy outcomes. Wouldn't that be nice if we could say, if you choose to have an abortion, you go ahead and do that, and we're going to make sure that we take care of that for you. If you choose to have a child and you are on a fixed income or limited income, we're going to make sure that we help give you a safety net to provide you with so you can have a healthy pregnancy and raise a healthy child. One of the things that made me nuts or cross-eyed or or steam coming out of my ears was um, something that I learned from your friend Rachel Maddow, with whom you used to host a radio radio show, show, a wonderful radio show. You discovered her, actually. I did. I had my my crazy friend Paul moved up to where she lives in Massachusetts and sent me her demo reel, and said, "Hey, my friend's really talented." And I'm like, "Ugh, no! Everyone's got a really talented friend." And then I listened to her demo reel, and she came down on the Peter Pan bus and met with me, and I hired her. Right. So she told the story of how I guess Homeland Security is interested in which immigrants at the border are pregnant and how many weeks they're... Oh, let me even take you through that. Okay. So... Because it's as not, we know, yeah. I probably said it wrong. No, that's okay, but I'm going to make you even more mad when I when I just give you a little bit of a reset. Okay. <laughs> okay, goody. Can't wait. So it's not Homeland Security. It's the Department of Health and Human Services. Ah. So an interesting thing that a lot of folks don't know is that that Department of Health and Human Services has all these tentacles that lead to things that you wouldn't assume um, would happen. Um, Fifty people that to, to my organization's research and count that are heading up or in high-level positions at the Department of Health and Human Services in the Trump administration have been taken, and their sole background is from anti-abortion work. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there was a department called the uh, OOR, which is the um, Office of Refugee Resettlement. And that office is an office that is supposed to create um, resettlement for undocumented minors and, and, and put them back into society. The person that in went, our country, in our country, yeah. <laughs> to and be clear, to be clear. So a guy named Scott Lloyd is the person who was running that department, and he set up the Kids in Cages program. And he comes from he was on the board of one of these fake clinics that you might have heard about. That um, they look like real abortion clinics, but they're set up by uh, Christian organizations, and they and they lure you in. Um, and then try to talk you out of your procedure. And they're successful at it. Yes. So he was on the board of that. He started a law firm that only took on cases that had to do with abortion-related things or anti-LGBTQ things. Um, He he is just literally, um, that is what he does at, like, level 11. And so he was monitoring the menstrual cycles of undocumented teens who were in cages at our borders and when a small woman, government small government tracking them personally might i say and so well, there's an app for that yeah there's an app for that right yeah. so tracking them personally to make sure that if anybody was pregnant um he would try to not let them have an abortion so there was one woman who when she was traveling her journey uh was raped and needed to get an abortion and and everybody needs to know that if you are in america you have all the rights of being an american and she was incarcerated, or yeah, incarcerated in Texas, and she had raised the funds to pay for her abortion. It wasn't a government paid for abortion. We don't have those here. Right. Um, and he tried to not grant her that. First, he brought her to one of these fake clinics and had people pray over her. But she got to the ACLU in this incredible organization called Jane's Due Process that helps undocumented minors in Texas, um, went all the way through the court system, um, went through the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit granted her her abortion the person who wrote the dissenting opinion that didn't want her to have her abortion was Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> um, and so um, Scott Lloyd, it was, it, it. thank God, it didn't make it to that much media. Rachel really covered it and broke it down beautifully. Uh, but thank God he was moved out of that because of it was starting to get so horrifying. And as we watched these children and heard about this creep who was like monitoring minors, uh, it cycles. is creepy and yeah. pervy and it's, weird. It's awful. And, you know, who knows how many undocumented teens and minors were uh, pregnant and didn't didn't get access to the care they needed. You know, what also sort of makes my head spin is that the people who are praying over pregnant strangers to keep their, yeah. their uh, rape, rape, begotten babies are the same people who used to sterilize minorities. Yeah. I mean, please make it go away. My head is... Anyone who is concerned about your pregnancy we made just had t-shirts made that said that say literally no one asked you with a uterus on them mm-hmm. i actually have it tattooed on my arm you do yeah literally well, you're not allowed to get tattoos anymore uh i i know because yeah. the health and human services yeah. are against tattoos They're against tattoos yeah so it's like i i don't understand at what point the entitlement of weighing in will not have why we why are we not in the streets Honestly, why we're not? I we're, Americans are so cozy. Every day. We're so cushy. We don't take to the streets. You know, and I have had, sadly, I mean, I'm 58 years old, and I've had 
friends my age, friends 10 years younger than me say, you know, I when I was in college, I used to use Planned Parenthood. It's just not my issue anymore. And I was like, you know, the autonomy of somebody of your gender should always be your issue. And the fact that the government wants to turn it, our country into a handmaid's tale, should you have daughters, sisters, friends, mentors, co-workers who are going to be directly affected by what is happening here. Not to mention the slew of people who are uh, under-resourced, who are black and brown, who these laws directly affect the most. I know. Liz, I'm not defending that, but I'm, I, I, I'm one of those people who is overwhelmed every day. You wake up and you think, oh, it's a beautiful, uh, not really. Yeah. And you think of everything that's gone wrong the day before yeah. about the climate which we're denying we're we're messing with with science is over the cancel it's canceled yeah uh, uh, a divided country like we've never seen before and I guess everybody has to pick their little their yeah. their little mound yeah. of territory and for a lot of my friends it's probably more environmental than reproductive but I'd say we all have to be aware of what we're losing because we're going to lose it yeah. if we don't and you know and I would say including free speech yeah and I would say it's it's the the thing that I guess I would I would I would hammer home to the listeners is it is the number one in every state legislature in the country. It is the number one proposed legislative issue and the least reported on the media. And so when we talk about, and it's also progressives who say, call it a wedge issue. You know, I, it, you take the right out of it and you talk about people who are on our side. I've had so many good progressives, I'm putting that in quotes, and Democrats say to me, you know, you're creating a problem. Like if, if, if you like keep pushing this abortion issue, um, you're creating a problem for other issues. And I'm like, here's the thing. Um, somebody in this country feels entitled to my body and its decisions. To me, that is ground zero for all other issues of human rights. And if you think that's a wedge issue, then you are part of the problem that doesn't value uh, reproductive rights in the global human rights sphere. So that's my pitch. That's my pitch. I'll take it. Thanks. I'll take it. <laughs> now, just before we get to your five things, yeah, Liz with two or three or four Zs. All the Zs. All the Zs. Really, you do. You're a Z owner. Better off Zed. Yes. <laughs> so what would happen if we had, I know there is progressive radio, but radio isn't what it used to be either. Right. Wouldn't Air America 2.0 be perfect for now? Yes, it certainly would be, you know. And it's so fascinating because when we launched Air America back in 2003, the landscape was 96% of all talk radio was conservative or ultra-conservative. Right. And there was 4% liberal or progressive. Um, and I don't think that swath has widened much. There's, you know, Sirius XM has a progressive channel and there's some other things, but it just hasn't grown. And so this drum beating of it is amazing. But that's why, you know, I do a podcast every Friday that's called The Feminist Sleeper Cell. And it's a roundup of all of the news that's happening around um, tr people trying to propose legislation around reproductive access. And it's fun. And we talk about these 
kooks that get elected. But it's nice to be able to have a podcast where you can learn about something as it's being proposed, get some information about how you can fight back before you hear it all of a sudden in the news that it's going to a governor's desk and it's going to like destroy the lives of a bunch of people. So I just wish that we did have more progressive radio. I wish that it was something that folks cared about. But, you know, it's tough. It's tough. We're we're all hurting. It just feels like we're all hurting. But but Liz is here to show us that there's a way to combine activism with your daily routine. That'll make you feel better. I certainly enjoy calling Jerry Nadler's office every week. <clears throat> yeah. And who doesn't? It's I mean, fun. Good it's times. Fun. Yeah. yeah. And always, like I always say, practice on the people who are on your side. You know, you so you get in the hang of calling. Yeah. Um, sometimes right, I get tongue. Yeah. Sometimes I get tongue tied. Yeah. Actually, hi, I'm a constituent. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, there's if you just Google like script to call congressman or script to call senator, you will find it. And you know what? Read it. It's fine. Like you know, the fact that you took the time to care is what they care about. Yes. And so they don't care if you sound nervous. They don't care if you say words wrong. They People who take the time, like, they that's a voter. Yes, that's a voter. It's a voter. Okay, five things that make your life better. Five things. Yay. Number one. Number one, my dog. What's your dog's name? So I have a 16-year-old mixed breed. He is Corgi Spaniel mix named Buddy. Uh-huh. He is, uh, he has an Instagram account that's delightful called Butterino underscore forever. Butterino forever. Okay. He is, I, I've never met a, I mean, everyone says this about their dog, but this dog is pure joy. Every human that the dog meets, the dog um, just smiles at and cuddles with. I got the dog because I had another rescue that was a chronic poop eater. And my vet told me that it my dog was bored and I should get another dog to stop the poop eating. Seriously? Yeah. And that's what it was? No. I just <laughs> created another poop machine. So the dog got extra poop now because <laughs> now there's two poop makers in the house. But, um, and all, yeah, and vets are also quacks. But so I got, I went to the, I took my mom who was 95 to the ASPCA. And she's like, I don't want to get out of the car. Bring me dogs to look at. You're not (laughs) going to get a dog. And I was like, fine. So I bring this dog out, Buddy. And Buddy, I have never seen anything like it, gently leaps onto my mother's lap as she is like, has her legs outside of the car and just curls up and looks at her. Oh, that's it. And she's like, so- you're getting this dog. <laughs> you know, she's very pleasant. And so I got Buddy and um, he was, fr- he became friends with this other dog in a way that was like, so, so like they would, they would sleep. Play dates and they stuff? They would sleep in a yin and yang and they were both caramel and white color. And so they would just have that like fish that fish yin and yang thing together and they would wake each other up and clean each other's ears and they were just so sweet and the fact that buddy is 16 and he's still going strong and my dog walker i have a dog walker got a puppy and the puppy was out of control and he brought buddy to meet the puppy 
and Buddy would snuggle in the ears of this puppy, and then the puppy would calm down. And so Buddy's like... Oh, Buddy's special. He's very special. He's a healer. He's a healer. And uh, he's just full of joy. And so I, I mentioned his Instagram account only because... My my dog walker does it, and it looks like Buddy just lives in New York and has a social life. He's like hanging out, like he's always on the street or he's with at a Ethan, picnic. Is he's he with the Ethan Hawke and with other, other celebrities? Yeah, yeah. Um, but his face will just—if you're having a bad day, like this dog's face will honestly make you feel better. Okay, it's just good. one of those pet, one of those pet healing things that I, I firmly. You're a giver. I I'm Liz, giving of, of the Buddy of the Buddy Butterino, Butterino underscore, underscore forever. forever. Number two. Yeah, my Minnesota root. So I'm for I am the biggest Minnesota booster ever. Oh God. I tell you, I'm from there. Mm. I can turn it on on a dime. I'm and like a dime. And a dime. I just go back to Minnesota. Here's my so born and raised in Minnesota. If you haven't been to Minnesota, the people of Minnesota, it's it's two prong. They're Scandinavian, so they're not very demonstrative. And then I'm this little, I'm half Scandinavian. So I'm kind of a fish out of water because I'm super demonstrative. But also, um, they're very passive aggressive. <laughs> like, you know, they, they, my mom used to say things to me like, I like your neck longer. It makes your neck look less muscular. <laughs> and you're like, um, thank you. <laughs> but in that case, I'm Scandinavian too. Yeah. So, but just like, a proud, hearty stock of of people who care. Um, you know, they're very liberal Democrats and, you know, s- Democratic Socialists, you know. And it's it's the kind... Bob Dylan's Bob home. Dylan, Ilhan Omar, Prince, Lizzo, you know, a lot of... Al. Al Franken. You know, it's like you come from a place where there are lawn signs up that say... I'll pay more taxes for a better Minnesota. Like people, there was no chance of like having that um, that sort of libertarian pull you, yourself up by your own bootstraps thing because it was necessary to help somebody uh, plow their plow or shovel their sidewalk, make sure that there's like that people have food when it's cold. Like you know, there was always a process with which you needed to check in with someone, and someone needed to check in with you. And so, so there's a the buddy, social contract, there's a buddy system in Minnesota. Yeah, Minnesota. Like we judge people. Like I'm gonna be honest. Like when Amy Klobuchar announced she was running for president, mm-hmm. and she was standing in the snow, and she's like, "I'm standing in the snow." All like America was like, "Oh my god, it's so cool." She's just standing in the snow. It's like. <laughs> Okay, first of all, where's your hat? Second <laughs> yeah. of all, and second of all, she was wearing loafers. And I judge people in the winter by the boot they wear because if you are not wearing boots that will make you helpful in some kind of snow disaster, like I don't trust you. Like why are you walking around with some kind of shoe where you're like I'd like to help, but I have these shoes on. It's like <laughs> I'm not interested. <laughs> Pack boots that are helpful. Wear boots that are helpful. So Pack you your like, fancy shoes. So you look at lug soles and treads. That's that's your specialty. Yes, I do. Because you never know if there's a storm and you got to push a cab out of it. You never know. Like, what's in your car? Do you have a scraper in your car? Do you have a blanket in your trunk? Do you have a shovel in your trunk? That's so Minnesota. If you don't, I don't know what you're thinking. Oh, yes, I do. About yourself. <laughs> I have to say, my first time in Minnesota, I was just excited to be in the place where 
Mary Richards, who wasn't real, was supposed to live. Yes. But Kenwood, the people are so not only opinionated, but nice. Yeah. Every taxi driver yeah. invited me to meet his wife and have dinner at yeah. their house. Uh, everybody was in the theater of yeah. some kind, very yeah. artsy. Yeah. And those big companies and corporations that you have are big, big supporters of the community. Yeah, they are. They it's, have taught corporate America a thing or two. It's Yeah, it's a really special place. And I think it stays special because it gets so dang cold in the winter that people are like, it's great. But, you know, that's why Seattle blew up yeah. and Minneapolis did not. Right. But, yeah, I uh, I go back like six times a year. Um you know, my family is really a strong family. And oh, let's go to number three. Yeah, my family. There we go. Um, yeah, so most of my family's there. I have one sister who moved to Oregon, um, but, you know, we see her a lot. But, yeah, so my family is, I'm the youngest of five kids, and it's, we really have a very strong family. We always have a very strong sense of humor. We have a very dark sense of humor, um, and it's, and and a, a very strong commitment to helping out. Like when my parents grew old, they're both past now. Um, like every one of my family charted out how we were going to take care of my parents. And since I didn't live there, I flew home every six weeks and lived in their retirement center mm. to give my folks or to give my siblings a chance to like not have to take them to the doctor. My mom never learned how to drive conveniently so she could manipulate everyone <laughs> um, and like to do the laundry and to do that and so it was really cool that everybody my siblings were very aware of how much it takes to really take care of someone and to take care of your parents especially and try to do it with dignity try to make sure that you can give them some sense of control when your world gets smaller when you're elderly it's super important to make sure that they um you can relate to them on some level they still have parenting to do you know you forget when your parents are 90 they are also sometimes become your children and also desperately you still want them to be your parents so how do you make that work mm. um and so you know i say to folks all the time like if unless your parents were just garbage if you can keep a relationship going with them do because when you lose them all you have is the memories to fill that hole so make sure you create them because it's really important it's it's so true uh i i still have my mom is still in rare form and i appreciate that yeah. all the time yeah it's important. 89 bless her heart yes and very sturdy it seems <laughs> <laughs> number four my abortion well, there it is. There it is. Yes. The elephant in the room. I feel like that is part of my mission to make sure that we sort of talk about abortion and and take the word and put it back into its proper place, which is a dignified healthcare choice that somebody can make mm -hmm. without shame or stigma. So talking about abortion, um, we have been for 40 years discouraged from saying it. We talk around it. Um, and I think it's important that uh, we say it so that people who've had abortions don't feel like they have to hold in whatever they're feeling about their own abortion from people and that people that provide it don't feel like they'll be shamed in their community. Um, one of the things that my organization, Abortion Access Front, does is we do workshops 
to try to destigmatize abortion, talk about it a lot, bring experiences into the room, um, ask people how they feel about the word, how they feel about talking about it, do they talk about it? And one thing that was really fascinating in one of our workshops we did with uh, people who provide abortion. And one of the things that these physicians said was they're afraid to tell their own primary care physician sometimes that they provide abortion because they're afraid of the care they'll get. That's how deep oh the my. stigma goes in, right? And so remembering that um, until we make it safe to talk about it and until we make sure that we uh, bring the facts out into our conversations and allow space for people to talk about providing abortion and having abortion, mm-hmm. we're always going to be in a space where um, anti-abortion zealots are going to be um, you know, creating the narrative. Um, I had an abortion, or I've had two abortions. Uh, I had my abortion at 16, the first one, first time I ever had sex, I got uh, pregnant, gosh. by a guy that wasn't great, kind of abusive. Um, I was 16, he was popular, he was a hockey player, you know. And um, I knew that if, I knew I didn't want to be with him forever, but I also didn't know how to get out of the relationship. Mm-hmm. And so for me, to be able to have an abortion meant I could guarantee that when I could figure out how to get out of that relationship, I could, mm-hmm. you know, cut free. Without, without the... Uh, yeah, without having this person giant, be in my life forever, right? Forever, right? right. And so I feel really lucky. Um, although it was hard, I ended up, um, you know, I didn't have anyone to talk to because in high school, you know, the gossip train is real. Right. So I kind of took it all on myself and didn't know where to go. And people forget, this was in 1978, and there wasn't, pregnancy tests really weren't a thing yet. They were very expensive if they were. And so the only place you could really get testing was at the doctor's office or if you knew about Planned Parenthood. But these fake clinics that I mentioned earlier were around and they would advertise on the bus. And I ended up in one because I saw an ad on a bus that said free pregnancy tests, you know, choices. Counseling, Counseling. choices. And I went there and a woman who was just a religious person was wearing a lab coat pretending to be a doctor. And she pulled out that book with those fetuses in it. And uh, she, when I asked her about abortion, she said it's against our law. She did. And think about that. You're 16 and you're scared. Right. And, and you're it, alone. And you're and alone. You no one to talk to. No one to talk to. And it wasn't against the law. She said it's against our law. Right. Because so, in 1973, it became a legal yeah. medical procedure. So when you're 16, though, and, you, and she says our law, she knows what she's doing. Yes. She's manipulating language to a person who's super vulnerable. And um, and I just said, I was so scared. And I, as I was leaving, I'll never forget, she said to me, remember your options are mommy or murder. That's what she said to me. Oh, wait, let me write that one down. Right? Yeah. And so uh, I, luckily, I can, I, I got back on the bus to go home and there was an ad for a clinic and I had no other choice but to call it, not knowing if I was going to be involved in another crisis situation, but it wasn't. It was an incredible independent abortion provider. And the really cool part of the story um, is that the woman that owns it now um, has become one of my best friends and we serve on each other's board. And she's the woman that brought all those laws that Wendy Davis um, fought against in Texas all the way to the Supreme Court. And she won and got all those laws repealed. Wow. Her name is Amy Hagstrom Miller and the clinic is now called Whole Woman's Health. Yeah, pretty cool. That is so cool. Yeah. 
So yeah. cool. So I feel very thankful that all of the stuff that I get to do is because I was able to access an abortion. I was able to. Well, yeah. I think if you had a do. kid at 16. With that, a person who was like abusive creep. and terrible. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been horrible. I would have never got out of Minnesota. Nope. Or or maybe finished high school. Or finished high school. You know, all right. of it. Right. So it's just like it it's a it's, you know, and not every abortion story has this like grand dramatic arc, you know, but it's again, if somebody tells you they can't have a child for whatever reason, believe them. And let's let's uh, let's say, you know, abortion safe, legal and necessary. Number five. Yes, my sense of humor. Uh, it's self-explanatory. Uh, yeah, it's gotten me. Uh, it's gotten me through pain. Uh, it has helped me. Uh, it's been my career. Uh, it's helped me take all the things I love and converge it into uh, making change. It's an incredible way to expose hypocrisy without lecturing. And the biggest thing I think that I've learned is if you're able to make someone laugh, it means they still have hope. So it's an incredible barometer for making to getting a gauge and how people are doing. Mm -hmm. So well, and it's nice to walk into a room and have people smiling in anticipation yeah. of enjoying you. That's right. Is and it? especially when they know I'm going to step on stage and talk about all the crappy things that are happening in the world. Right. You know, my my comedy is is 80% political satire and responding to the news of the day. And so uh, I think that they almost welcome it to say, I've watched this all day. Would you please take on all these people who are abusing their power and gaslighting us? Because I need you to make fun of the gaslighters. And I'm like, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Well, it's a treat to see you again. Thanks for having me. It was so fun. I really enjoy seeing you. Congratulations on the good work that you do. Thank and you. thank you for doing it. Yeah. I, you, you know, don't thank me. It's like, it's just part of what I do. I, it's, it's in me. She's a giver. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Liz Winstead, co-creator of The Daily Show, one of the founders of Air America Radio, uh, the co-founder and chief creative officer of Abortion Access Front, and the host of Feminist Sleeper, Sleeper Cell, Cell, which those of us who have almost lisps can't say. Uh, which is a podcast. You can follow Liz on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Liz Winstead, and at least two Zs. At least two Zs. You can and follow Abortion Access Front. And follow uh, Abortion at, Access Front. And at Access Front. Yes, and also um, buy one of their T-shirts or mugs, which I have done. Yay! You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, YouTube, and iHeartRadio. Or if there's another place to get them, get them there. My blog is at lisabernbach.com, where you will find links and photos to all the things in this program, including Butterino. Uh, this podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Jimmy Regan. My team is Espresso, Rucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week. Stay cool and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.